So uh, for those of you that know me, know me well, you've heard me talk about um, the five years that my wife and I spent in Vancouver, British Columbia as church planters. We lived up there um, in our, early in our marriage and really amazing experience, especially for someone who loves the outdoors, which apparently you guys all learned last week in a video that I like the outdoors a lot and I act like a child in the outdoors and I'm not ashamed of it, all of it. So Vancouver was like a wonderland for us. I mean, when we, got, when we got called into church planning and we got called to go to Vancouver, British Columbia, in some ways it felt like, yeah, we were having to leave where our family was from and go to another country, but it just felt like a little gift. I mean, I got to go, if you've never been to Vancouver, I mean, it's mountains, it's ocean, every kind of outdoor sport you can imagine. If you want to kayak, they have it. If you want to mountain bike, if you want to rock climb, if you want to hike, if you want to backpack, if you want to open water kayak, whatever you want to do, Vancouver has it and it's all at your fingertips. It's incredible. And so I remember when we first moved up there, uh, Amy and I, we tried to find places near our house that we could hike. And about 20 minutes from our doorstep was this place called Lynn Valley or Lynn Headwaters. And honestly, it was just like a little metro park, uh, pretty close to the city limits of Vancouver. But the first time we went there, we were just in awe. And when we get out of our car and we're walking into these towering Douglas fir trees, I mean, huge trees, and there's these gigantic ferns uh, growing in, in the undergrowth, you know, and you feel like you're on an episode or a movie of Lord of the Rings, like you're a hobbit walking through these gigantic trees, you know, and there's this beautiful creek that flowed through Lynn Headwaters, Lynn Creek, uh, that you hiked along, and there was a gigantic suspension bridge that you went across to get across Lynn Creek, and when you got to kind of the terminus of the trail, there was this huge pool of water where the water came out of like a crack in the rock, like this gushing torrent and then a big open pool with this clear, beautiful rock. And I remember the first few times we went there, it was just pure majesty. I mean, Amy and I were like, this place is majestic. So different from the trails I grew up hiking in the southeastern United States. I mean, it was just majestic. But, you know, something interesting happened the longer we lived there. I can remember we started going to Lynn Headwaters. It was like our go-to place for hiking and trail running. It was only 20 minutes from my doorstep. And I remember we started going there. And something happened the more I went there. That slowly but surely, I was kind of like, oh, cool, another Douglas fir tree. Oh, look, more ferns. You know, it was like slowly but surely, that which was majestic started to feel a little bit mundane. In fact, I remember even having this moment where uh, I came back to the southeast and I went hiking in East Tennessee and I'm like, oh, deciduous forests, yes. This is amazing, it's majestic. You know, it was like, <clears throat> if we're not careful, sometimes we experience something that truly is majestic. But the more you get used to it, it can begin to feel a little bit like the mundane. And you know, what we're gonna be looking at this morning um, is one of those things in the gospel story. It's a familiar story, it's a familiar aspect of Jesus' life that we've all heard a thousand times. And if we're not careful, this incredibly majestic moment in the life of Jesus, the story of Jesus, really gets close to risky of us just feeling like it's kind of mundane. And so we're in this series called Experiencing Jesus. We're gonna take the whole summer and just kind of look at different aspects of Jesus' life. And if you're new to Ethos, you need to know this right up front, we really, really, really love Jesus. We trust Jesus. We want to follow Jesus, and we're unashamed about the reality that we believe Jesus is the Son of God, God in the flesh. And so you'll hear a lot about Jesus this summer, and if you have questions about who he is or what he's like, this would be a great series for you to jump in with us and kind of learn more about him. So in John chapter 1, we're going to be looking at an aspect of Jesus that has begun, I think, sometimes to feel mundane to followers of Jesus because it is an aspect of his life that we literally every single year at the same time of year we focus in on it. We're going to be looking at what is called the, the incarnation of Jesus or the, the, the act of God becoming flesh. It's the thing that we celebrate every Christmas when we talk about the birth of Jesus. And this is what we're looking at in John chapter 1. 
You know, the truth is the birth of Jesus is perhaps one of the most remarkable and majestic moments in the story of the gospel, but it is one that we are completely apt to miss because we've talked about it so much that it begins to feel mundane. And so let's look in John chapter one. John chapter one that Jessica just read, we're gonna look, just kind of highlight in on a couple of the verses in this passage, starting in verse one. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Look at verse three. Through him all things were made. Without him nothing was made that has been made. Okay, so this passage, if you're new to the Bible, could feel a little bit confusing because John's sitting there talking about the word, and we're like, who in the world is the word? Well, the word, there's lots of fascinating stuff we could dive into. We're not gonna have time this morning, but John was very intentional in using the word. It was the Greek word logos, and he used it intentionally. Don't have time to get into that today. I was really tempted to right there. I'm not gonna do it. <laughs> so just know for this morning, this morning, just know that the word is Jesus, okay? That's what John is describing. Here at the beginning of his gospel, he's describing Jesus, and listen to the way he describes him. He says, listen, Jesus was at the very beginning. Jesus was at creation. Through Jesus, all things were made. Nothing has been made except for it was made through Jesus. It's like an audacious claim that Jesus, John is claiming right at the start of his gospel, Jesus is God. It's an incredible claim. Jesus is God, and John's not the only one that makes this claim. You start flipping around in the New Testament, you come to Colossians chapter one, you find the apostle Paul, and he says, hey, listen, Jesus is the image of the invisible God. Colossians 1, he says, God was pleased to have all the fullness of God dwell in Jesus. I know, I, you know, I know sometimes it's time to think of Jesus as just a man, but it's not what the Bible holds out. Like Jesus is God. In Philippians chapter two, the apostle Paul would say it this way. He says, listen, in your attitudes, you should try to be like Jesus, who had full equality with God, but he did not consider equality with God something to be grasped or held onto for his own advantage, but instead he made himself nothing, humbling himself and becoming like a servant. So what the New Testament holds out is this remarkable claim that Jesus is God, and if we want to experience the full power of the gospel story of Jesus, we have to begin with a proper understanding of his identity. Jesus is God. And what what John chapter one holds out, and John, if you get down to verse 14, he says this about Jesus, the word, the word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. The word became flesh. God almighty became flesh. Now this this theological, this, this is, this, the theological word for what this is describing is the incarnation. It's God putting on human body, stepping into flesh. And there are a lot of angles that we could look at the incarnation, understanding this aspect of who Jesus is, God incarnate, but the, the angle I want us to look at it from this morning is this, that in John 1, in the incarnation of Jesus, what we see is that the invincible one becomes the vulnerable one. The invincible God becomes absolutely vulnerable. So in order to understand why that matters and what that means, we need to unpack this word vulnerable and what the word vulnerable actually means. You know, I've kind of found that vulnerable is kind of a catch word that is kind of used in a couple of different ways. And it's, it's kind of, you know, it's a word that we like to throw around as something that we want to strive for in a lot of ways. And so one, one definition of vulnerable that I want us to work off of is this. Uh, uh, to be vulnerable means that you are a person or a group of people um, who need help. You are in need of help. You are unable to help yourself. And so when we describe the vulnerable, 
We're describing a population of people who are unable to help themselves and they are in need of the help of others. And so we describe this in kind of a, a noble ideal in our culture is to be considered someone who seeks to help the vulnerable. If you're somebody who gives yourself to protecting the vulnerable, you're saying, hey, I wanna protect the weak, I wanna protect the at risk, I wanna protect the marginalized, I wanna protect the powerless, and this is like this noble ideal that we have about vulnerable, those who are unable to help themselves. And here's what I want us to see in the incarnation of Jesus is that the invincible one becomes the vulnerable one. Jesus, God becoming flesh, he took on perhaps the most vulnerable position a human can take. He came into the world as a helpless newborn child. I don't know if you've ever held a newborn baby, judging by the number of kids that went through those doors. Many of us have held newborn babies, <laughs> but some of you may not have before. And if you've never held a newborn baby, I'm just telling you the experience. You're, you're holding this little person in your hands and it's, it's like, I remember holding my, my firstborn son for the first time, just looking at him and going, oh my goodness, like, like one wrong move. Like if I, I'm so much bigger than him. Like if I did one wrong thing, drop, drop him, do something. It's like, I could hurt him, damage him. Like, ah, I've got so much power over this little, little human life. He's so vulnerable. I love one writer describes Jesus becoming vulnerable this way. I love the way they write it. They say, God came to us and he made himself known in the most vulnerable way possible as a newborn infant. Born in the obscurity of a Bethlehem night onto a bed of hay, eight pounds of flesh, unable to survive even his first hours outside of his mother's womb without her care, skin on skin, mouth to breast for life-giving nourishment, arms wrapped around his tiny frame, Mouth to face, fingers tracing his nose, his cheeks, his head. Jesus, within minutes of his birth, began to experience suffering. Bethlehem's cold wind against his tiny cheeks, a drafty stable, rough hay, crude blankets. The writer is describing the experience of God the invincible one becoming the vulnerable one in all the ways that Jesus was completely helpless. I want us to see this. Don't miss the majesty of this. Don't let it become mundane. Don't miss the, the Douglas firs that are growing out of the soil, this part of the story, that Jesus, the invincible one, when he came near, he didn't come just as one to say, hey, I'm here to help all the vulnerable people. No, he entered all the way in by becoming the vulnerable one amongst humanity. But there's this other way that we use the word vulnerable, not just to describe those who need help, those who are helpless. We also use vulnerable to dis describe kind of a desired quality for relational connections. Like when we describe the type of community we wanna be a part of, we're like I just wanna be a part of like a vulnerable community. People that are honest, people that are transparent. And so we describe vulnerability or being vulnerable describes this like aspired after quality within a relational framework. And yet I think if we're honest, we say this is something we want. In fact, we even train our house church leaders at Ethos. We're like, hey, here's how you can cultivate vulnerability amongst the group that you're leading. But if we're honest with ourselves, we all say we want it. But the problem is vulnerability oftentimes feels more like an elusive ideal than the reality of our lives. Why is it so hard for us to find true, authentic vulnerability in the context of human relationships? 
I think there's a wide variety of reasons, but one of the things that occurred to me in preparation for today was this. I think we have often treated these two understandings of what it means to be vulnerable as two different things. We've said, oh yeah, there's the vulnerable, that's those are the people that need help, that are powerless, and then there's the vulnerable, the type of community that I want to be a part of. But beloved, what we have to realize, if we want to truly take hold of vulnerable community, we have to understand these are not two different things. The truth is, One of the reasons vulnerable community is so hard to find is because being vulnerable means that you are voluntarily saying you are a person who needs help. In order for me to experience vulnerability, I have to raise my hand and say, I'm a broken person. I have flaws. I need help. I need other people around me. I need God in my life. I am weak. I have messed up. I have hurt other people. I have to put my flaws and be honest with my flaws. Being vulnerable means, hey, it's not just helping the vulnerable. It's to know I am the vulnerable. It requires us to enter into our weaknesses. Beloved, many of us want to be known as those who help the vulnerable, but the the question this morning is, if we're following Jesus and we're trying to imitate Jesus, does it not make sense that we also have to imitate his vulnerability? We have to imitate the fact that he became the most vulnerable. The truth is we are conditioned to avoid this reality. I mean, that whole narrative, the the self-sufficient, you know, independent American, right? Isn't that what we're kind of conditioned to want to be? But to say we're followers of Jesus means we have to imitate, and I think there are two necessities that we have to grapple with, two necessities of walking in the vulnerability of Jesus. The first one is, how do we handle power? How do we handle power? This is the first necessity we have to wrestle with. The second one's gonna be, how do we walk in trust? And we'll get to that in a minute. But the first is, how do we handle power? And you're going, what does this have to do with vulnerability? Well, remember, vulnerability of Jesus is the invincible one who has all power becomes the vulnerable one. How do we, as his followers, handle power? Jesus had a lot to say about power. In Matthew chapter 20, uh, verse 25, Jesus looked at his disciples and he said, listen, you know that, that the leaders of the Gentiles, they lord it over them. They love being in high positions and they love to take advantage of their power. He says, listen, but not so with you. He says, if any one of you wants to be great, you must become a servant. Jesus had this upside down understanding of how power works. But Jesus used his power to walk in vulnerability. So backwards. He used his power to walk in vulnerability. He did this in his birth, like what we just looked at, born at the most humble circumstances, but he also did this in his death. At both ends of his life, we find Jesus fully embracing vulnerability. At the end of his life, at the beginning of his life, he's a helpless baby in a manger. At the end of his life, he's literally hanging on a cross, totally naked, exposed in front of everyone who can see him, suffering and agonizing, hanging there. The people that are murdering him are gambling for his clothes at his feet. And what does Jesus do? I mean, what a man. What a man. In his agony, he looks down from a cross, sees people gambling for his clothes, and he says, Father, please forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. Forgive them, God. You see, the way Jesus handles power is that he willingly relinquishes it or leverages it, maybe, in order to bless the other. 
This is the Jesus way of handling power. Now, this is very different from the wisdom of this age, the wisdom of this world. In fact, the wisdom of this age says this, hey, you should make every effort to gain as much power as you can in whatever context you're in. Make, make every effort to gain as much power as you can, and then you should leverage that power in order to hang on to your power. This is the narrative of this world, of this age. In fact, I'll give you an example on the macro level of how we see this. Let's start with how we see governments being run. You know, if you have a look at totalitarian regimes or authoritarian dictatorships, whatever it is, you have a look at them, this is the way they look at power. Make every effort to grab it and then use it to hang on to it. In fact, it was really interesting Um, I don't know if you saw this in the news, but last week or the week before, uh, the World Health Organization spoke out against the way China was handling the COVID uh, uh, pandemic. And guess what the Chinese authoritarian dictatorship did with the words of the World Health Organization? They censored it. (laughs) They spoke out against the way they did something, and the Chinese government censored it. They completely cut off so nobody in their nation would hear it. Why, Why do dictatorships tend to censor anything that criticizes them? because they're making every effort to hold on to the power that they have and anything that reveals that they might be wrong, they might be flawed, they might be not going about it the best way, they gotta cut it off and get rid of it completely because they want to hang on to their power. And here's the reality. I think many of us, myself included, I'm really tempted to kind of look and be like, oh, Xi Jinping, you know, the leader of China. What a terrible person. He's a dictator. He's censoring. He's cutting people out. But beloved, what I've learned about myself when I look at my own heart, if that's what's happening at the macro level, at the micro level, I do the exact same thing. We are constantly being fed the lie that it is normal and healthy to edit our lives to look the way we want everyone else to think we look. We are conditioned to think that it's normal to use an online platform like social media to put pictures of myself out there that will make everybody else think that my life is better than it actually is. Am I not censoring what other people see in my own life? Why would I do that? I don't want anyone to see the flaws. I don't want anyone to see the weaknesses. I don't want anyone to see the doubts. I don't want anyone to see the insecurities. And so I censor it out, I edit it out. We don't just do this on social media though, we do this interpersonally. I do this, I'm a master of this. I I want everyone to know the good things about me. And I'll play up the good things in conversation and interaction, I'll play up the good things, but the moment somebody begins to point out the thing in me that is flaws, I'm like, nope, nope. I get defensive, I change the subject, I get myself out of the situation. I may even say something bad about them in order to draw some attention to their bad stuff. Oh, you wanna look at my bad stuff? Let's look at your bad stuff. Am I the only one? Nobody else has ever done that before? <laughs> you know, I, I, I do this in my marriage. I love it when Amy, my wife, has good things to say about me, but when she begins to say stuff about me that hits a little too close to home, I immediately wanna draw attention to, hey, but yeah, look at all these places, I'm a great husband. How dare you bring up the things where I'm not attentive to you, where I'm not, it's like, oh, what am I doing? I am editing out my life. I'm censoring the things about me. I am using my power to hold on to power to make myself look as good as possible. I don't think I'm alone in that. I think this is something all of us struggle with, wrestle with. We are called to imitate Jesus, to follow him, 
power in the world of Jesus and following him is not to be used for selfish gain or selfish protection or self-protection. Rather, it is meant to be used in a way that makes ourselves vulnerable to those in our lives, that makes ourselves vulnerable to God, to be okay with not being perfect, to recognize when I've got things that are off and to be able to go to others and share those openly and let others point those things out in me and to be honest This is how we are to handle power as followers of Jesus, to use our power to bless others even when it costs us. And this requires risk. It requires us taking risk in relationships, which we'll get to in a little bit. So how do we handle power? We handle our power to make ourselves known, to put ourselves out there for others to see us the way that Jesus did. But it's not just how we handle power. The second necessity is learning how to walk in trust. How do we walk in trust with one another? Let's start with Jesus. Like, did Jesus do this? How how did Jesus walk in trust in making himself vulnerable? Well, the first thing that we see is that Jesus had to trust his father. Now, if you're new to following Jesus, uh, this sounds a little confusing because I just said Jesus is God and now I'm talking about the father. Uh, This is what we call the Trinity. Um, To say the least, it is majestic. It is hard. It's like... The Trinity, God is one God, three persons, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, and Jesus, the Son, had to put complete and total trust in God, the Father, in order to be made completely helpless as a, help, as a, as a babe, as an, inf- as an infant. And so Jesus required trust. Proverbs 3, uh, verse 6 says, trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding, but in all your ways, submit to him, and he will direct your paths, he'll make your path straight. Jesus' vulnerability began with an absolute and immense amount of trust in his Father God. And the same is true for us. If we want to live into the vulnerability of Jesus, it takes a deep amount, an immense amount of trust in God Almighty. And while I think this is true, I think many of us sometimes can use trusting God as an excuse not to trust other people. It's easy for us to say, I trust God. I don't need to entrust myself to people. These people are terrible. Like, these people are God's trustworthy. These people are not. Like, do I have to trust them? But Jesus had to trust people too. He didn't just trust his father. Jesus trusted Mary. I mean, God looked at the earth looking for a woman for God to be born to, and he picked this young, unmarried, teenage girl who's never been a mom before. I mean, I don't know about you, like if I got to pick who my mom was, like <laughs> I'm gonna go find who, and who has raised children, done a good job, and kept them safe and raised them upright. Oh, I'm gonna go with that woman. No, God looks down and he picks Mary, who's never been a mother before. She's actually vulnerable. She's poor, unwed teenager. And that's who Jesus chooses to be born to. He had to trust Mary. He had to trust Joseph. Throughout his life, he had to trust his closest friends, the disciples. He trusted 12 of them, and he let them all the way way into his purpose, his mission. Three of those 12, Peter, James, and John, got invited into the most intimate moments of Jesus' life. In fact, at the very end of his life, Jesus trusted Peter, James, and John to come in with him as he prayed. He said, listen, I am agonizing in my heart. I am in anguish. He knew he was about to be arrested and murdered. He says, come with me and pray with me. And Jesus starts pouring out his heart in prayer. Those three dudes straight up fell asleep. Can you imagine that in your house church? Like you're pouring your heart out, trying to be vulnerable, and half your group is like, like snoring away. It's like, oh my goodness, Jesus trusted them. He trusted them. Guess what he knew? He knew their flaws. He knew they wouldn't catch him perfectly every single time. He trusted them. Vulnerability requires this immense level of trust, knowing that the people that you're trusting are actually flawed just like you are. 
and I still take a risk to trust them. How do we build this kind of trust? I believe this kind of trust can only be built by living lives in close proximity with one another. One of our our problems today is that many, maybe even the majority of our relationships are mediated through a screen. We, we deal with conflict through text messages. We, we break up with one another in emails or text messages or social media posts. We confront each other's wrongdoing through a screen. The reason vulnerability feels so elusive to us sometimes is that we are hiding behind a screen trying to trust one another. Jesus did not hide behind anything. He came all the way in. He entered all the way in. The word became flesh if we want to imitate Jesus. Beloved, we've got to engage one another eye to eye. If someone has wronged you, I I, I beg you, talk to them about it face to face. If you've wronged someone else and you know it and it needs to be owned, talk to them face to face. If you love someone if you have feelings about affection for someone, affirmations for someone, tell them face to face. If you're struggling in your walk with God, struggling to believe, share it with someone face to face. Don't just put it out there into the you know, world through a screen hoping that somebody will catch you. No, we were made to do life together in proximity. Something literally happens in your brain chemistry when you look into the eyes of another human being, when you feel the touch of another human being. We were made, literally created for life together in close proximity. We're made for this. It's why the word became flesh because God longed for us to entrust ourselves to him and he knew the only way to do it was for him to completely entrust himself to us. And that's what he did. My hope for us, I I wish I had time to unpack all the steps to creating safe atmosphere, safe environment and community. We just don't, we don't have time for it. My, My prayer for us this morning is that our hearts would be stirred by the vulnerability of the one we follow and that we would be prompted to follow in his footsteps no matter how long it takes us to become a vulnerable people, that we will move into it. Let's be a vulnerable people. Let's use our power to bless others. Let's walk in trust face to face with one another and not try to take things out with one another through a screen. Let's, let, let's not let the vulnerability of Jesus become mundane to us, but let's see the majesty of what it is and may it take hold of our hearts. So as we land, we get ready to go to communion here in just a minute. I, I, I want to just, just name something really quickly. One of the questions that stirs in all of us is going, hey, but why is vulnerability worth it? I mean, if we're honest, like, like, hey, it has to be a vulnerable community. Vulnerability got Jesus killed. Being vulnerable, he got rejected. He got betrayed, straight up murdered. Man, who, who wants to sign up? Let's do it. <laughs> like, let's be vulnerable. But here's the reality. It did get him killed, but the story does not stop right there. Yes, his vulnerability led to a cross, but it also led to a tomb. And Jesus was in just as much a need. He was just as vulnerable in the tomb as he was in the womb. I made that rhyme on purpose. That's pretty cool, huh? He was just as vulnerable in the tomb as he was in Mary's belly. He was vulnerable. He was in need. And it was in the place of his greatest need, a lifeless corpse lying in a tomb. In that place of vulnerability, that is where God came to him, 
kicked open the tomb, raised him to life, and said, all right, let's do this thing and open it up to all of humanity. This is the victory of Jesus. Many of us want the victory of Jesus, but we don't understand that the path to the victory goes right through vulnerability. Will we be a vulnerable people who understand that it is good for us to embrace our need for each other and our need for God, our need for Jesus? See, when you embrace vulnerability, you begin to live in this place where you no longer have to hide. You experience grace. You experience forgiveness. We get to be ourselves and not try to be who everybody else thinks we should be. We get to be exactly who God made us to be, full of grace and truth and walking in the victory of Jesus because we have embraced the vulnerability of Jesus. So I'm gonna pray for us and send us to communion and we're gonna put a kind of a question on the screen And what I want us to do over communion is just start with Jesus. Where are the places in your life where you need to admit, you need to admit to Jesus that you need him, that you need him? Where are the places that you need to admit to Jesus that you're struggling to know how to turn to him? You're struggling to know how to need him. Be vulnerable first with God. Get the bread and the cup and just sit with him. And be vulnerable, be honest with him. But then we're going to turn and try to take this thing to one another as well. And as you sit with communion, you can turn to the folks around you, turn to the people that you came with, and just start asking them, just start sharing with them, hey, this is where I'm at with God. Or this is the place I need help being vulnerable. Maybe it's someone you need to apologize to. Maybe it's something you need to confess Maybe it's someone you need to make things right with. Maybe it's a place that you need to share your heart fully where you've been holding back. I just want to encourage you this morning as you take communion, invite the vulnerable one, Jesus Christ, to lead us into being the vulnerable community that is trying to follow him. Let me pray for us, and then I'll release you to the table. Lord, we love you. We thank you for paving the way through vulnerability. It is mind-blowing. It is majestic, Jesus, that you would give up equality, like being in heaven, equality with God, to just come in a helpless infant. And that you would give yourself on a cross. And so this morning we ask as we commune with one another, would you let your Holy Spirit just move us to being vulnerable with one another, to being fully known, and we not hide. And Lord, if, if this morning we don't know how to do that yet, would you just start teaching us? Holy Spirit, teach us how not to hide anymore. Come and be in our midst as we take the bread, as we take the cup, as we remember how the invincible one became the vulnerable one. We love you, Lord. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen.